Hello and welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Michael Schur, chair of the Cedarville University Department of Social Work. He grew up in a conservative Jewish home and attended Hebrew school. He even has a Hebrew name. But throughout his childhood, he had questions prompted by conflicts at home and in his extended family. Listen to today's episode with Mark Weinstein to discover his faith journey. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, and joining me today on the program is Dr. Michael Schur, professor of social work and the chair of the Department of Social Work at Cedarville University. Michael, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's good to have you. Just so uh, people understand more about who you are, Dr. Schur is a relative newcomer to Cedarville University, having joined the faculty just in 2018 after the retirement of Dr. Nelson Henning. He's worked in higher education since 2004, holding administrative positions for more than seven years at both faith-based and secular universities. Dr. Schur has written three books, is the editor of the Journal of Human Behavior in the Social Environment, serves on the Mental Health and Recovery Board of Clark, Green, and Madison Counties in Ohio. And last year, he established the Association of Christians in Health and Human Services for Christian providers who desire having a platform to network and support one another. And we'll talk about that today somewhat in the podcast. Let's start right there, actually, Michael. Sure. What compelled you to start the Association of Christians in Health and Human Services? What was the motivation? Wow. Well, I'll, I'll give you the short version. As I was a chair at a secular school a couple of years ago before, before being called to Cedarville by Nelson, uh, getting that phone call, mm-hmm. there were a lot of elements that were happening in the uh, current Christian Social Work Association where, in summary, the issues began to take precedent above the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Before 2012, uh, we always had some, you know, tensions about the extent to which we should focus on all different kinds of issues. And then after 2012, there was a subtle shift that has just become inflamed to the point where it was just time to leave. And then I realized that it wasn't just happening in social work. Uh, more and more of the so-called Christian associations were just being taken over by the issues instead of the gospel. Okay. So how long has the new association been up and running? We were officially given 501c3 status in May of this year. It took many years to, to get to this point, as you saw, uh, years and years of writing and writing bylaws, getting the buy-in both on campus and off campus, and making sure we had the, the right people at the table to make this happen. And so uh, we are just now completely official, and it's actually completely separate now from the university. So Cedarville launched it, and now it's separate. In the short time that it's been up and running, have you seen any fruit of the new association? The process of developing the association in and of itself has been fruit because we, get, we had a retreat where we gathered people from different disciplines, different denominations that really shared a commitment to scripture first, the gospel first. But we weren't all from the same denomination, same background. 
so if you'll, you know, on our website, if you go and see, look at our core values, the, the ability to get 18 different people to agree on mm-hmm. word for word, a core value statement of what we do care about and what's important and to then form a board and then for a place like Cedarville University to take the risk to do something, know that something had to be done to for the kingdom that sort of pushes it out there and makes it open in the umbrella of uh, Christendom for others to create this ecumenical Christian association that could be useful to others outside of Cedarville University. Obviously, yeah, there definitely is a risk when you're trying to blend all these thoughts together, even under the umbrella of Christianity. I'm wondering, from our students' perspective, is there any benefit to Cedarville's social work students with this association? Oh, sure. And nursing and psychology and allied health. And that's why it was able to be launched because, again, all the all of the helping professions know we know well that uh, Dr. White has really put a, a really powerful vision together of the thousand days that they're with that students are with us. Right. But in the culture that we live in, when students graduate and they go off to work, especially in our field, but in the business world, they're going to be confronted with all kinds of ethical dilemmas and where the Christian associations and organizations that are available to them are, again, are really beginning to cross the line where they are no longer allowed to have biblical positions on anything. We needed a place, students need a place to network professionally, mm-hmm. to feel solidified and encouraged, and to know that they're not alone as they perhaps take stands, as they speak into issues, as they live out their lives for the gospel. So for all of the students at Cedarville in the health professions area, this is a significant advantage that they have because it's housed here, it was formed here, more than any other school in the country, right? Correct. We, we hope that this keeps them connected. We want them to join all the other associations, but we want to help them be effective as they network and they interact Uh, with all different kinds of stakeholders. We believe that it's important that there are people in the emergency rooms, hospitals, nursing homes, family service centers, and and in public services that really still believe that the gospel is true. Yeah, that's that's so important. I, I commend you for bringing this initiative to the forefront and leading it toward a reality. So again, thank you for that. As I move move on the podcast, I really want to get to know how and why you came to Cedarville back in 2018. But, sure. be, but before I get there, I need to even go back a little farther in your life. And that, that is your spiritual journey because you are a Messianic Jew. You Correct. have a very interesting story to share. Can you share your spiritual journey with us and how the Lord opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel and Him as Savior? Sure. I will try to be brief. Grew up in a, a conservative Jewish home, which it means in between Reformed, it, which is sort of relaxed, uh-huh. and then Orthodox, which uh, tries to follow every word biblically, all the laws of the Talmud as well as Scripture. Conservative kind of falls somewhere in between. I was the first grandson of a large patriarchal Jewish family that had a lot of influence at our local synagogue. Um, my family were, you know, I guess similar to an elder family at a church. And I uh, went to 10 years of Hebrew school. My mm-hmm. Hebrew name is Mordechai. 
Mm-hmm. And I had lots of questions all through school. Um, my my parents had a horrible relationship. They fought a lot. Uh, I saw money kind of corrupt and ruin uh, relationships between uncles and aunts and and cousins and and kids not talking to their parents mm. and all kinds of things of this nature at different levels, both current uh, close family and extended family. Got into a lot of trouble all the time. I was sort of a black sheep. You were the black sheep. I oh sure yes I I got into a lot of trouble okay. I had too much free I had too much freedom uh, I think it's not a stretch to call me a reprobate I'm, I should not be sitting here uh, I was in all kinds of trouble with any bad advice that you could imagine of and um, and so what what happened was first of all I, I met my my beautiful bride Stacy when and we got married when we were nineteen I wasn't a believer then but mm-hmm. she began to show me the gospel she and her family. Without really sort of shoving the, the the scriptures in my face or making me feel guilty, she never forced me to go to to church with them. And then when I turned twenty three, my mother, my grandfather, who was the patriarch of our family, but then a couple months after my mother died of colon cancer, uh, and that was the uh, the impetus for asking all kinds of questions for myself. I had you know, an existential crisis about whether God is real and not, and uh, what's the purpose of my life. Mm. And so I just decided one day to open up a Bible. I prayed that, Lord, would you just, if you'll teach me, I'll, I'll, I'll take what you want me to learn. Teach mm. me what you want me to learn. And honestly, I've been doing that every day since, uh, since, I, since I was 23 years old. And so I've been in God's Word every day. And shortly as I began reading, all the lights came on. Uh, I began seeing uh, the connections between Yahweh and Jesus yeah. from the beginning. And uh, there you go. It just kept building and building from there. How did your faith in Jesus at that young age, even 23 is a young age, how did your story connect with your family? Were they receptive to this or kind of like, no way? No. They First of all, they didn't accept my wife at first either. So we, okay. we had... we and. My father especially was harsh. He said I was walking away from 2,000 years of tradition and family, and even as I tried to explain it to him. But, you know, it's okay because what I've learned as, you know, being in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ since I was 23 years old, so 26, almost 27 years now, is his knowledge of Torah and his knowledge of Scripture, he, he hadn't really lived in God's Word. Right. So he doesn't really know. He, he most People don't know. Right. So it's all what's been taught to him sociologically or or like how it fits into someone's culture. Uh, and so I'm very comfortable knowing, yes, I am Jewish, but Jesus is the Messiah. If, it's, if there's one thing I know in this world, yeah, um, that's honestly the only thing I would say is completely and utterly true. Yeah. That and the, and the authority of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. So how is your relationship with your, your dad today? Uh, you know, it's the closest we've ever been. I I try to uh, share the gospel with him daily. I email with him and I share scripture on a daily basis. It's not gone well all the time, but we are as close as we've ever been. That is one of those miracles that I pray for on a constant basis that the Lord would open his eyes. But interestingly, as I've focused so much on my dad, two of my sisters have come to know the Lord, and I have an uncle that who came to know the Lord. Uh, so and the interactions with my father are softening. 
So I, I do believe that something's going on there. Yeah, that's good to hear. So with your heritage, you have a unique platform to share the gospel. How do people respond to you once they've learned of your faith journey or your belief in Jesus and heritage as a Jewish man? They usually want to know more about it. They want to understand more. I think that I know, I, I, I really believe that the Lord called me to be a watchman to believers. Mm-hmm. So early when I, was, when I came to know the Lord, I got a lot of pressure from other Jews who came to know Jesus to join one of these groups. Wachayim out of uh, Pennsylvania, out of Philadelphia, the, uh, the PCA movement to the Jews, mm-hmm. or you know, um, Jews for Jesus, one of those kinds of movements. Right. And I, I honestly never felt called to share the gospel with Jewish people first. I do now with whoever I have an opportunity to, but I always felt called to be a watchman to believers, to not take the gospel for granted, and to understand, you know having lived under the law and felt the complete and utter impossibility of having, of being able to follow every little tiny thing that you, that you're supposed to follow and know what it's like to feel as if you're never worthy at all to begin with, to then grasping this notion that Jesus made the curtain tear for us, that I can go and read Torah myself. Right. I don't need a rabbi to read it for me. Right. Uh, I was raised that the Torah was only something you touched when the rabbi brought it near you. You don't dare go up and touch it. And if you drop it, you're in trouble. It was always a thing that, you know, hands off. Only very few people get to actually go up and read it. Your passion is obviously to share the gospel with whomever. What opportunities have you been given or, or taken advantage of since you've been here at, at Cedarville? Oh, it's reawakened uh, every day I'm in class at uh, the way I integrate scripture into all of my courses. And honestly, uh, with faculty to remind them, especially even faculty in the BTS, that, that our theology is only as legitimate if it leads to total surrender in our Lord Jesus Christ. I just marvel at what it would be like to be a, a Jewish person and believe in the Savior. I mean, you have all the heritage behind you, your name and, and your your history, and uh, what a what a great blessing that is. Has to be. I can't say whether it's a blessing or not. All I know is that I love more than anything in this world to be spending time in God's Word. Every time I go to God's Word, I, I'm I'm like a little boy again. I I just I really could do that all day long. Yeah. What kind of network do you have with other Messianic Jews? Is there a network that you have? I've helped and I've interacted a little bit uh, with the Students for Israel group here. Um, I have, throughout my career, been asked to do Messianic Passover Seders at different churches. I did one virtually for HFC. Um, I was supposed to do one at Berea Bible Church, I believe, up in Springfield as well. Uh, Forgive me if I'm saying that name of that church incorrectly. I was supposed to do one in Columbus. It just, again, COVID ended that. But again, I just, I, I've never really felt called to, to that network, to that ministry. I do, in, you know, indirectly, I have friends and networks of people I went to school with and family members that I try to share the gospel with on a regular basis. But I just don't wake up feeling as if I have to 
go to Israel, for instance, and be a missionary for Christ right. in Israel. Right. Do you see among your Gentile believers a passivity that you wish that you could just put your arms around them and say, you know, shake them and, and get them going? Does that ever come in your mind? The hardest thing about being a professor at Cedarville or the challenging thing of, believe, of being around believers is that when I see, and even in, in the best of intentions, when we try to live out our walk with Christ, how quickly it can quickly turn into, again, a list of do's and don'ts, and how quickly believers who spend many years studying Scripture, I almost became a pastor, and I am leery of the professionalization of the gospel. I'm really concerned about the Christian elite and becoming a Christian Pharisee. Mm-hmm. And so if I had one wish, if I could sort of help my brothers and sisters in Christ here, but everywhere, you know, to think through when Paul talks about, you know, for the weak, you become weak. For the strong, you become strong. If someone eats this, eat that. If It doesn't really matter what you put in your stomach. It doesn't really matter what you sing, as long as Christ is crucified. I think of Philippians 3, really everything is rubbish apart from knowing him better. Yeah. Amen. Because the other way, which I know very well, is you're destined to have a spastic, anxious, compulsive faith where you're saying little prayers for every little thing you do, right, wrong, and otherwise, and you just never know where you stand. Yeah, you're hoping. Your your life is hoping, and and not a hope of confidence, but it's a hope of like, am I going to make it or am I doing things right? And, And that's a very unsure way of living. And, Amen. And so Amen. many, exactly. so many of us, of us believers can go that way. So, right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I want to get back to really my initial question, original question. That is, what circumstances led you to joining the faculty at Cedarville? And I'm so glad you're here. I know for a fact that it was the Holy Spirit who moved in Dr. Henning in His wisdom to call me. I believe in God's providence. I think it's biblical. I think He foreknows all things that come to pass. So I was just sitting in my office one day. I had stepped out of administration, and you know, and I've had nine years of whether being a chair of a PhD program or chair of an IRB, chair of two different large programs. I built a master's, I built a doctor program. I was just tired of administration and of what was happening at secular schools. So I had stepped out of being a chair and had just started my first semester back in being a professor without any other responsibilities. They say in the academy, the best job to have is a professor with no other title. <laughs> and Dr. Henning called me two days later. Wow. And, I, and I kid you not, the first thing I said to him, and we go way back, I said, Nelson, you can't do this to me. What, what is this? <laughs> you have no idea what you're doing to me right now. You're like messing with my life. And the hour was more about me saying no. And then also Dr. Henning and his wisdom saying, you know, Michael, there's 20 reasons why you shouldn't come. And there's only one that could be that really matters. If you believe Christ is calling you here, that's all that matters. Would you at least talk to your wife about it? Yeah. So did you know Nelson before all this interchange of conversation? Sure. This is the only place where I would have come back and been a chair again. I really was tired, you know, so I've been affiliated with Cedarville University since 2003, 
when Professor Huff and I met together and at a conference, and I was always intrigued by no other university, Christian university in the world, speaks so explicitly about living it out, about biblical integration, right. integration of faith in all aspects of the campus. And that, to me, appeals to me. That was unique. And so Dr. Henning and I had discussions many times, and Professor Huff about me coming, and when, when there was a lot of talk about the MSW program, whether I would come and help build it, uh, the Lord just always, it wasn't the right timing. Maybe I was too prideful. Maybe I wasn't ready to conform enough. Right. Who, who knows? So you, you mentioned a little bit ago about, uh, you brought up the topic of um, integration, and that's where I wanted to go next. Sure. How do you, as a Jewish believer, a faculty member, and leader, integrate your faith in the curriculum with the students? There's four key areas. Any faculty member that ventures to be a Christian educator in any field, I believe both from data and from many years of research, you have to have a genuine relationship with the Lord. You have to love to make your primary lens a biblical lens. And then whatever field that you're in, that you're called to, that needs to be sort of the last membrane into your soul by which you let things in and out. I think of Colossians 2.8, mm -hmm. being very thoughtful about you know, what is real and not real, petty philosophy and knowledge built on elemental forces of this world and not on Christ. You have to have a real commitment to uh, developing relationships with students, but that has to come as an outpouring of your walk with the Lord. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, just has to be out of the outpouring of your, of your faith. You have to have some level of expertise in areas of what you teach and what you study. And again, you have to do that living and working through on a regular basis how I call it the contemplative cycle, how scripture influences what you're reading and learning and studying, and how what you're reading and learning and studying re yeah. shapes and makes you think about and goes back to scripture. And there's a willingness to kind of go through that your whole life to, you know, the sanctification process of becoming nothing and Christ becoming everything. Um, and then finally, you have to have the the pedagogical, andragogical experience and, and, and commitment to make a classroom a safe classroom, to help students to challenge what they think they know, what they think they're about, and, and to claim their vocation as their own, whatever that is. So as a professor or administrator at a secular university prior to coming to Cedarville, is that the one thing that was really missing in your life where you wanted to be able to have the opportunity to integrate your faith in the classroom and which is what's brought you to Cedarville? I was, I was living more of a compartmental life, you know, uh, for the first six years or so, you know, being at NNU and then at Baylor, I, I rose to the ranks pretty fast as a Christian educator. I wrote a lot, uh, was promoted really fast. And even at Baylor, which, you know, holds itself as the Protestant Notre Dame, right. I was always, there was a, the cost was, I was, I was encouraged always to have sort of a more nuanced view to my faith. And I just couldn't go there. I'm pretty certain in, a, in all humility that if I would have just uh, adjusted a little bit, been more flexible, I probably would have been a provost or, or a dean or something at Baylor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I could not move past the gospel's got to be that Holy Trinity, the life, death, and, re- and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and everything's got to flow through that. Yeah. And, then, and then you can deal with everything else. But if you can't all agree on the core of the gospel, then it's not really a Christian university. And I, I just couldn't do it. So I wanted to move into administration and try it. I kind of did it as an experiment to see if I would even be hired at schools. I left my beliefs very much forward on my CVs. And, and I was hired, you know, I was finalist at a lot of schools. I picked a couple that would make me grow as an administrator. It did, and also wore me out. <laughs> but I also got to see a front row seat to the total insidiousness of the state-supported education as it applies to all the ideology. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to pivot uh, in, our, in our final few minutes of the podcast. I want to pivot toward the world of social work because it, sure. se- it seems like social work centers on the consequences of sin that the church doesn't want to handle. And that might be a hot topic, but it seems like that's what social work is about. So what is or should be the role of Christian social work with and beyond the church? I, social, work, social workers are servants of grace. Servants of common grace first, in that by the work that what we do, no matter who we work with, we are making God known, right? We are evidence of his covenant promise to hold the world together while he works out the end, right? Before Christ comes back again. So when you see what we do and we go where the church, unfortunately, will not go, we love the unlovable. We go towards the leper. We, we, we hug them. We, we deal with anything that you can think of that the church wouldn't want to deal with because of church politics. So that we, we are servants of grace. I really see ourselves as the Stevens of society, the deacons of society. Mm-hmm. When you think about in Acts, when they call deacons, uh, so they have to be, social workers have to be as knowledgeable biblically, but they really have to be focused on the praxis of their faith. The theology has to live itself out. It, it, it can't just be up in your head. But and while the public uh, answer is that we're servants of common grace, we're also we're just servants of grace because when the opportunity comes, we also are prepared to share our testimony and, and tell people about ultimate truth, ultimate biblical justice. So given your definition of social workers, shouldn't all people be viewed as social workers? Shouldn't we always be giving grace to people? That's a really powerful question. This goes back to when social work was originally created. We're an applied discipline. We, you know, we're a professional field. Right. But at the heart, social work should not exist if the fields, if the professions did what they were supposed to do. If the churches lived out, if the physicians lived out their oaths, if lawyers lived out their oaths, nurses lived out their oaths, you know, philosophically, you could say that, and I tell students, our job is to work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. Knowing that until Christ comes home, that's probably not going to happen. Correct. Because of sin. Right. Yeah. So it's really an indictment on all of us who aren't doing what we should be doing as believers or professionals. And, um, you know, who, who am I to withhold grace? And, and I do frequently. I'm, I'm, I'm so 
ill-prepared or inadequate, but who are we, who am I to, to withhold grace when the Lord has showed me grace and mercy untold? So um, thanks for, thanks for sure. sharing that. Um, I want to wrap up the podcast more on uh, social work. How have you personally been able to handle the coronavirus pandemic? And then I want to briefly talk about how has COVID-19 impacted human behavior? So the first part, sure. how have you been able to handle uh, the coronavirus pandemic? So I'd like to say that, uh, you know, with full joy and, and love of the Lord, uh, I've tried to keep a schedule. I, I'm an avid runner. Um, yep. I try to stay in God's word. My family is close. So living in Cedarville in a rural area has, has helped us to have some freedoms and some ability to get out and about. But I would not be honest and, and full of integrity if I told you if it was easy. There has been some struggle. Uh, there's some been blessing. A lot of you know meals together with my family that we used to not do as much. But it's it's been tough. It's been uh, hard. We didn't visit my in-laws this year. We didn't go to Florida. I didn't go see my father who's in New York. So we've been handling it by just handling it and knowing yeah. that Christ is glorified in how we handle suffering, like in James chapter one. And so. Yeah. With that said, you know, there's many implications or effects of COVID-19, and you're studying about COVID-19 and how it is impacting human behavior. How is it? You know, I think that the social distancing, the emotional, psychological, sociological, anthropological consequences of COVID are going to be much more long-lasting than who gets sick with getting the vaccine, the ventilators, those things are important. I get it. I mean, we all get it, that we have to deal with that and we have to get this resolved. But we, we are at a point where, you know, human beings, we talked about sin and the need to provide help and why social workers exist. We're really good at offering help in a pinch. We're really good at uh, dealing with a crisis when, even as, especially as believers, when we have an opportunity to serve and be a blessing. Uh, we like to have that opportunity, but over a stretch, cr- long period of time, when it becomes chronic, uh, we're not the best at that. And we get to see the, the sin and the selfishness of our core, of our flesh. And, and so there are some long lasting norms and behaviors and, and societal things that are allowed and not allowed, things of what's safe and what's not safe, what is a fun thing to do and not a fun thing to do. I think. These things are actually in the balance, and it's going to depend on how quickly we're allowed to get back, whether some of these things stay permanent, whether some of them stay for a long period of time. I'll give you a couple of examples. I see it sounds so abstract. Mm-hmm. Think about teenagers. How are they supposed to find their spouses? Right. How are they supposed to interact if they're all at home, online, uh, if they can't go anywhere? Where are they supposed to be rebellious at yeah. all? Yeah. What about the family who... Uh, every family member, every family has, you know, we love each other, but do we want to be around each other 24-7 on a, that long of a basis? You know, that's a whole different dynamic. How do you choose whether you let your child drive, go somewhere or not go somewhere? Where do you go on vacation? Do you even take a vacation? What is worth spending your money on versus not spending your money on? Yeah. I, I think that there are going to be consequences that are going to last 
a long time after we get a vaccine. I don't think a switch is going to come on and say, we can all come out now at a hibernation right. and go back to normal. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Uh, I think the implications or the impact of COVID-19 is far more reaching than just, did I get sick or did I not get sick? It's going to, it's going to have the long-term repercussions and uh, how we deal with life going forward. And hopefully this allows us, not just believers, but unbelievers as well, to recalibrate our lives and focus on what's important. And hopefully for believers to help point people to Jesus. It, it's a real thing. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And you'll have some great research to follow for your next book as you follow Sure, us. sure. And, you know, I'll give you one last thing to think about with that. And, you know, from a biblical perspective, some of the humanistic theories are not very grounded, but they do give us lenses to look at the world. And so one way to look at this long-term is do social learning theory, mm -hmm. which looks at the, the really subtle cues that people give each other about behaviors and things that are okay, not okay, uh, reinforced, not reinforced. And so things like, you know, who has a mask on, who doesn't have a mask on, yeah. what people choose to do and not people, little tiny facial expressions that we don't even understand yet. If this keeps going long term, right. what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what we teach our children about that kind of thing, um, all of those kinds of behaviors. Yeah, and just the impact of, even to children. Right. How are they able to, to develop uh, mentally, physically, socially, spiritually uh, in this environment is challenged. So those are great uh, observations. So thanks for sharing. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I, I could keep talking with you a lot longer, but... Uh, I need to close, but before I do that, I want to thank the listeners for being faithful to the Cedarville Stories podcast since we launched this nearly a year ago. You can send me your feedback or suggest a future guest by emailing me at mweinstein at cedarville.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, I want to thank Dr. Michael Schur for joining me today on the podcast. I've enjoyed getting to know you since you first joined us in 2018, and I celebrate the great work that you're doing in leading our social work program. You're a blessing to be with. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories Podcast, brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.